0: Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Adam Holt, CEO of AssetMap. AssetMap is a powerful online visualization tool that helps advisors and clients get on the same page and better visualize their entire financial futures and lives. And with that, here's my interview with Adam. Hello, Adam. Hello, Jason. Thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely, no pleasure, mine is mine. Excellent. So Adam Holt of AssetMap, tell us about AssetMap. Sure. As map is,
1: um, is a financial software project that I've been working on for the past 15 years in my financial services practice. It's ballooned into something much bigger than I ever would have imagined now. as you now thousands of advisors are starting to use it as a best practice in their kind of customer experience, where basically they're visually mapping what's going on in people's lives to help them understand how to make better decisions and facilitate a better conversation
0: around it. Okay. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, that's effectively what we're doing today. Good. So we'll come back to that in a minute and talk about what that actually looks like in the software. But can you take me through the journey of what caused you to start this company?
1: You know, I think it was um, it was a great um, idea many years ago because what I had found when I went to my high net worth customers is that we're spending a lot of time putting together these fantastic presentations, uh, many hours in the financial planning side, and we found our clients just never read it, right? They wanted the summary. And it wasn't until many years later when I was drawing out uh, my understanding of the relationship between people's assets and insurances and people's trusts that a, a client said to me, you know, I want that drawing, right? The drawing is what I want. You can take all this other stuff home. And so we figured out that if we just standardized this drawing, we could actually use it in our back office to help our advisors and our clients really understand what we needed to do. And it wasn't until uh, we actually, until about 2008, we've had a significant growth in our business for the last three years using this product that we actually built a technology around. It. And that's when it became something that other advisors had seen through competition, as well as some collaboration, and they said they wanted to use it too. So that was the real impetus. It wasn't really a plan to build a technology company. It was really just to solve a problem, which is to
0: help us communicate. Like so many advisors, you have a problem in your own practice that suddenly becomes a business.
1: That's, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And now it's almost as big as our financial services practice, which is pretty
0: amazing. That's fantastic. So take us through what you're actually visualizing. How are you streamlining this and simplifying it for people so they can understand it very quickly?
1: So that we found actually, we tested this for years, but we found there was really five things that we needed to capture on an asset map to really have a really good conversation. And it's not unlike Jason when an advisor meets with a client anyway, they have to do some level of fact finding anyway. So clearly we need to know the people that are involved, right? Who are the legal entities and the individuals that are dependent on us and the decisions we make? Uh, We need to have an understanding of who they are at all times. They actually live at the top of an asset map because that's why we're doing all the other stuff. The second most important part is our cash flows. So what cash flows do we have that are coming in both current and expected. I think a lot of times we see that expected incomes like pensions or annuity benefits or maybe inheritances, they never make any of the balance sheets or cash flow statements because they're not real, but they're very tangible in conversation. So they need to live on an asset map as a as a future instrument that's coming in. We also need to clearly talk about assets and what matters about the assets is not only who owns them, who controls those decisions around them, but what's their tax position. So we color code these different assets and holdings by tax strategy. Liabilities are clearly on there, who owns them, who's obligated to them, and lastly, insurance policies for those that protect a lot of these assets and people. Where are they? Are they the right ones in place? So you can imagine this, we've organized this, so it's literally scalable for any level of complexity. You can see all the instruments, on one page, hide them, show them, reorganize them, and it really becomes an effective and almost fun way to actually interact with customers.
0: Yeah. so for those of you who are uh, not all, everybody's on the podcast, this is an auditory thing for a very visual company. But essentially, what it, you know from the looks of it, what it is is you have these little graphics of the people sitting in the middle, middle of uh, the screen or, and or their business. And then you have assets extending out to one side showing up in blocks as whatever account that they're holding. You have their income and all their income security stuff coming into them as inflows. You have their investments going as outflows and you have other assets that are jointly owned separately from that and your insurance separately from that. And everything's kind of organized by category, I believe, essentially.
1: I'm sorry, we very much care about asset location. I know that that story has been told for many years. I think our industry has been really focusing on the Ibbotson reports that were already now disproved that said that 90%, 91% of results in investments actually comes from asset allocation. I don't mean, know he actually posted something that actually disproved this whole theory a few years ago, but we've all kind of been ingrained in that, and that security selection was something like eight or 9%. But the, the funny thing about it is that what we found at the high net worth is that even a larger amount of impact was asset location, right? So what kind of tax strategy or who owns this or what's the exit plan of this business or why should this be in trust? And so those are bigger issue discuss, you know, discussions, I think, that tend to get left off the table. And it's because our current presentation layers really talk about asset allocation and maybe cash flow planning. They don't really talk about why one instrument should be in this spot or what are your peers doing that you're not doing that you might want to take advantage of.
0: All right. Excellent. So, I mean, in effect, what you've done is you've done, you created a software to create, for lack of a better term, an infographic around the client's life. You got it. That's right. Actually, so effectively, for lack of a better term, what you've done is you've created a software that creates a simple digest infographic around the client's life. That's
1: exactly right. And you know, what happens when you get an infographic is you can really engage people much more effectively. right? Even if the people don't understand the infographic, because that's them. It's a picture of them and their world. They take the time to actually break it apart and ask good questions. right? Why is it, should this IRA here? Should this investment be here? Should this uh, be in a better tax position? Why do we have this insurance? Does this even make sense anymore? The key is for us as advisors today, is actually to find a way to apply our advisor intelligence more than artificial intelligence, right? So this is a kind of a buzzword that I've caught on in that you know, a lot of the tech that's been coming out, and we've been captured by this as well, is exciting, you think it's gonna give you great efficiency, um, you still gotta integrate it, and the challenge is actually delivering value to the end consumer. So we've been focusing a lot on how do I make the advisor look better, right? How do I actually put enough information on the infographic that I'm not answering every question But I'm actually promoting the asking of the good question. And so the advisor really winds up being the sounding board for saying, well, this is why we should do it. This is why I need to move the money. This is why we need to start reevaluating these types of instruments, because they don't make sense based upon the current, we'll call it
0: inventory of your finances. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the never ending struggle for, for us to demonstrate value in something that is typically intangible. And yes, traditionally we'll do that through financial plans that hopefully you get it down to a minimum digestible executive summary and some small, small action plan. But the reality is clients don't want to digest endless tables upon tables. Sure. There are some that do, but you know, even in my practice, we, we digest it all down to a 10 slide slideshow of which a couple of bullet points for what you're trying to achieve Here's a couple of pretty graphs that show the picture, and here's the bullet points for how we get there, right? And so as much as we like to get caught up in the complexity of what we do, the simplicity of just showing them the order and organization of what you've done here is a huge payoff to them because these, I mean, I, I look at this and think to myself, my advisor shows me that, shows me they're on top of basically everything.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, it's really funny we found, you know, and many of us in the financial space have been trying to do something like this or do something like this already on a yellow pad, a whiteboard, some way to describe that, yes, number one, I know what's going on in your world. And, I, and I've come from this mantra that all consultants have three basic expectations, right? You got to prove to your client, number one, that you know me, right? And know me is the customer so saying. You have to prove that you know what's going on in my world. Number two, you got to know What is my situation? And number three, you got to know my options, right? If you can bring a kind of competent, coherent approach to that, I'm probably going to follow those recommendations. But it's clear you got to start with, you know, you got to know the client first. Now for us, you know, we feel that asset map was a really great visual expression to say, hey, I know you, here's all your stuff, here's your world, here's your people, here's all your stuff, here's your clutter, here's a bunch of mess, here's do, you're doing great here, you're not doing great here. But the second question has to be addressed, really. And that's where planning comes in, right? So we have to figure out a way to do A So what question, which is, well, what does this big asset map mean? Does it mean that we're on track or we're not on track? Are we healthy? Are we not? And so we built a process called target mapping, which effectively tries to tell somebody on page two how funded they are for major goals. Those funding, those goals might be retirement, the common ones, it might be education. Uh, It could also be how much life insurance should I have, right? Am I fully funded in the event that I prematurely pass away? or disability long-term care, the common ones, right? And so what we've really focused on today at AssetMap is to say, okay, I can show you where everything is. We can talk about it in an honest conversation. Number two, I can show you whether we're on track for major goals, and I can actually now reveal the cash flows behind it. But the real question for all of us is to help people make decisions, right? I mean, we can get stuck in the analysis all day long. The client doesn't actually approach our relationship and say, hey, I'd like to spend the next two hours doing an analysis. They really wanna say, hey, what should I do? And I think we've gotten away from that as an industry because there are so many people now trying to lead with advice. They're mistaking the the kind of research and the guidance and the analysis stuff as actually a product of what the customer is really paying for. So we think that the customer is paying for confidence in decision-making, right? That's why they want you there. And I guess the best analogy, Jason, I can give you is that commonly when we go to, let's say, a GPS on our phone, right, to find a direction on how to get someplace, for the most part, we're looking only for a couple of things. How long is it going to take me to get there, and which way should I turn? We're not asking for a whole diatribe on all the things that are, you know, going into this calculation and yeah. what the traffic is. So we have to remember what the customer is looking for, right? They want guidance, and they want confidence in action. This process only gives them confidence or doesn't, so that's really what we're looking to do is get to action faster.
0: Fantastic. So let's let's go through the actual experience of using this software with a client. What does that look like? Okay. Well, we're very I
1: think we're very aware of that actually. I'm glad you asked. The customer experience, as everybody's been talking about recently, is something we've been just Obsessed about for the last ten years, mostly because our high net worth clients already expect the best experience. They expect that you're empathetic. They already know that, you know your their needs are your needs, whether you like it or not. So I think there's really three, I would say, major modalities or environments that advisors are working in today. Now, clearly face to face, Meetings with our clients is still how many uh, people receive financial advice. Usually it's in an office, very rarely it's in homes, but there are still communities that are are going to clients. So we had to be very mindful of how to actually interact with ASMAP. So ASMAP is number one designed for a single page expression where you can put a, a page in front of a client and say, hey, let's work on building this together, let's change it, let's draw and let's scribble in it. And we actually created a concept called stenciling, which if you remember from our childhood, depending upon uh, the audience and how old they are, we used to lay these plastic stencils over a piece of paper. We could draw a perfect circle. The same idea is actually done here in map. We actually can overlay what your demographic peers have on top of your map. So as an example, someone who's nearing retirement, you might see that in their current map, they're missing certain income protections or maybe estate protections or let's say um, a liquidity, for example. We can actually show them their map and overlay what their peers have so that they can actually make contextual decisions. Say, you know, that's true. I don't have that. Please explain how that works. Or I don't like that or I don't believe in that insurance or whatever it might be so that you can really get to the root of the problem. And I think the paper experience is really important. The second piece of that is that many advisors have moved to a digital expression, right? We're using uh, mobile tablets to try to interact with clients. We're doing live projection uh, presentations on a big screen in our office. So you need we need the ability to actually capture attention and interactivity by literally building an asset map together with our client. And earlier last year, we actually delivered an experience to our advisor base. They can send actually a link to their consumer pre-meeting or prospect to actually pre-populate an asset map entirely at the consumer level. And then it gets built for the advisor. So the advisor actually doesn't do any work. This is really interesting, especially in mass engagement, where you're doing enrollments for benefits or other kind of larger environments, webinars and such. And then the last way is, of course, how most people are trying to meet these days, which is remotely. So we really focus on the remote meeting management in AssetMap, where you're really only in two experiences, what we call the AssetMap and the TargetMap. Why is that relevant? So we found that when you're actually running remote meetings today, the biggest challenge is to capture attention. In the time that you have, because you can't see them, you can't really gauge, kind of respond to whether people are actually texting on their phone or listening to you. And so we actually promote this idea that, that meetings for review meetings that are web-based should be half the time of a normal review meeting, 30 minutes. It forces you to move very fast, and you literally can only show two screens. Those screens themselves can evolve throughout the meeting but you can't flip amongst multiple screens. People will stop paying attention. So we actually designed our remote experience to be the same as our digital experience and the same as the paper experience, which is everything has to be just two screens. Where is everything? Are we on track? Where is everything? Are we on track? So that really kind of keeps a framework for actually the experience at the user level.
0: Interesting. And then let's go back to target maps. So essentially, is this essentially a goals-based uh, planning module that you've integrated into it? Yeah, exactly. It's all based upon um, cash flows. It's actually quite accurate. It's actually accurate to
1: the day. We tended to focus on um, the fact that everybody has cash flow needs over different periods. For an example, I might know that my retirement starts on a certain date and hopefully goes to the ripe age of 100. But if I wanted to equally say I want my daughter to get married on this date or my kid's education, we could actually project that to the day how much capital you would need in today's terms, to fund that project. Where it's different than any other planning module is that we actually tend to focus on, on really the end result, which is how much capital are you short or overfunded for this project? If you're short, express it to me in the terms of what my monthly savings needs to be in order to be fully funded. Mm-hmm. So we come from this, this idea that I don't ever care whether I'm going to tell you when it fails. I'm going to tell you what it's going to take to make it work. Under the presumption that you're coming to me as a client to say, Adam, I want, tell me what it's going to take to retire with this kind of lifestyle. I'm going to tell you what it's going to take. The savings might kill you, but I'm not going to tell you what it's going to take to fail. And I think the, the difference between a lot of the, the goal based modules is well, you're going to run out of money at 87. Or Monte Carlo says that you know, you've got a 92% probability of making it. Everybody's mm-hmm. focusing on the other 8% thing. Well, what the heck happens if that happens? Well, that's mm-hmm. not a good outcome. I mean, here's what it's going to take to make it work at 100%. Now let's see what we can actually get to, right? So I think that's a, that's a big difference, I think, in the way most planning is done, but it's clearly more aspirational and tries to align us to focus on on the summit
0: as opposed to focus on on the failure. Fair enough. So thus far, what's been the, you've been at this for quite a while, advisor feedback. What's the reaction been to uh, to this when you show them what you're capable of doing with this platform? You know, it's that's funny you ask that because it's really interesting
1: to see So we catalog testimonials in our system. We have over 650 testimonials from advisors. They've either gotten it from the themselves or their customers saying that this has changed their life, right? So it's just extreme testimonial. And then we also have feedback from a lot of advisors that say, it's too simple, it'll never work. And we're always, we love that one because the people that actually don't wind up adopting AssetMap are those that actually buy it because of the vision of it, but ultimately usually just can't implement it. And I think that's really, that's endemic of the real challenge in our fintech industry, which is, as you well know, it's so exciting to add all these cool tech tools and change the customer experience. It is not easy to get yourself and your staff to implement these things to any real measure unless you commit to learning them
0: and implementing them as a defined process in the customer journey. Yeah, um, and so not and frustrating itself about what it doesn't do, but specifically steering into the way it does work. So you can implement it to the nth degree of what it's capable of, as opposed to being like, well, I'm going to try to work around these things that I, I, I work differently. So I'm going to try to work around the way this software works. Yeah, I totally agree. And by by the way, isn't that kind of revealed by the fact that most of us only use 10% of the
1: capability of our tools and it's still good enough and we're happy to pay for it? Most of the time, we're happy to bet, right?
0: Right. I don't argue with what I see. It's it's even less than that. I mean, that was the statistic that came out about Excel years ago and they keep on adding Mm -hmm. features that people don't get more sophisticated at. So I'm sure it's probably down to like five (laughs) or more first time but it's
1: right it's true isn't that true that's true about the iPhone too and so most people use it for text messaging phone and internet browsing when they can do a million they could run a space shuttle so but the funny part about it is that for us it's funny that we bring this up my hope because I was frustrated by that is that advisors get to use 100% of map Because my belief is that the, if you can actually unlock the power of map and don't pay for stuff you're not going to use, and let's just really focus on really valuable value-added stuff, we know, we already have now enterprise-level results for multiple years that advisors using Asimap are actually making more revenue than those that don't by a significant measure. And it's usually because if you make the tool usable enough, they'll actually use it. If you get the response from the client that, hey, we appreciate this experience, and guess what? You're going to use it again. And so that's typically what I think we see as a feedback responses. This is the best one I would love, Jason, is that is we got this testimonial, I guess, a couple of years ago. The client said to the advisor, he said, this is the thing I've always wanted, but I didn't know how to ask you for it right? <laughs> think about that. It's, I wanted you to provide me some clarity and organization about what's going on in my life and show me you actually know what's going on in my life because I don't really know. And that's why I'm hiring an advisor. And you're giving it back to me in a way that I can digest it and now even communicate it with my family, my spouse, my executors, whatever it might be. I'm you're giving me actually value that's deliverable mm-hmm. and tangible. And that's what we think is actually what we've, what we've struck on with Map is that I think for the first time, it's something that advise, that customers actually covet. They want their map. They want to update it. Updated. They want to, and they think of that value at the advisor level. Thanks for providing
0: it for me because you thought about my needs. That's huge. Well, you answered my next question, which was, what has the client reaction been? But I mean, I totally get it. To me, this is, it's so easy to digest their entire life in one snapshot using using something like this that I can totally see this being almost, in some cases, too effective where the client almost wants to see it <laughs> on a monthly basis and, and the advisor yeah talk them out of it, That <laughs> is what it
1: is. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that's a funny thing you said. So we do have integrations with major carriers, uh, custodians, and other firms that do enable the updating of the, of the data points. But you know what you see here? Well, there's a lot of, there's no company out there, even Mint, who's kind of a consumer facing thing, that actually has accurate data for all their clients on a consistent basis. Like these, these systems yeah. are broken, the, the, the logins will work. And so I, I think we're seeing actually a departure away from the expectation that that's actually going to be really valuable on a day-to-day basis. Where I think it's interesting is if the advisor can be a conduit for thinking at a high level, that's great. And so we actually allow advisors to automatically round all the figures up or down so that we're not looking at this as the daily value. So you imagine saying, well, I've got about 40,000 in that account. I don't want to get stuck on whether it's $40,153.20. That does not matter. We're not making decisions at that level, right? We're saying, should we keep this much money in this account or should we add to it actually because it's doing well or serves our means?
0: And Um, and those are the better conversations. It's so funny you say that because I mean like I've had this debate with other advisors like things we use for fee disclosures and whatnot and I always round off the nearest thousand again because the clients don't care about the straggling little dollar. They care. It's theirs, but it actually creates more cognitive load to go down more digits to understand exactly how much money they have as opposed to, hey, I've got 100 grand here. I've got 30 grand there. I've got whatever. 30 grand, $502 dollar it's not making the mental impact on them. They're just rounding, they're rounding in their own minds as well. So may as well. Well, So how many times have you been in
1: meetings just yourself, right? So, you're sitting there and you ask somebody, you know, well, how much do you have in that account? And they say, oh, hold on, let me let's pull up the statement. They're looking for the first time themselves. They can't find the papers. You're wasting 10 minutes to try to find out the number, and they finally tell you it's, oh, it's a six hundred and twenty-three dollars and fourteen cents. I'm like, okay, you could have said six hundred dollars, and we could have moved on, right? Yeah, the, exactly. the distinction around being perfect in data collection—we know the value is going to change every single day. It's actually pointless. In fact, we really try to help people, advisors specifically stop getting stuck in the details at this level of the conversation. Let's find out whether that number is a huge number,
0: or a small number, or an inconsequential number. Well, um, when you, and when you think about cool. it also in a reporting standpoint, like even the financial plans, like if you have it down to the last dollar, it's like, well, congratulations, that number is then wrong the next day. And it's, it's like, it's, yeah, it's, message. Wrong. it's like, oh, but my statement says 100,586 and you have me down at 100,000. Like, it's just, yeah, why yeah. create that stress?
1: I don't know. I, you know, it's funny because obviously you can probably tell I have a lot of opinions about this stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's really, it's well, maybe all of us, I guess, right? We, yeah. we want to grow and we want to we believe we're doing the right thing or at least the best thing we can execute for our clients. It's funny. I love that as an aside because, you know, there's so many advisors that really want to do the right thing for our clients. And there's no question about it. We, we sometimes rack our brains and put ourselves to misery to try to, you know, give accuracy to our clients so that they'll be better off and hopefully they'll appreciate it. But most often, I don't think they do. But when it came to actually building the funding models for how funded you are for, let's say, retirement, one of the biggest challenges I always had was explaining the Monte Carlo approach or explaining the sequence of returns or even kind of the modern portfolio theory kind of expectation of returns and these things. It's very hard to, I think, most advisors even understand, let alone communicate. And so when it came time
0: to... What's that? Let alone understanding the math of it.
1: Oh, yeah, right. So it sounds like Hocus Pocus. It sounds expensive. We all buy some of that. But I think the, the challenge, I think, and the expectation of most people today is that you can't really explain it. then people have a lot of, I won't call it anxiety, but they, they, you know, they wonder whether it's fake news or not, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of questioning going on. You have to be able to describe things in a way that humans can really understand today. And so when we designed our, our funding model, we said, okay, you can't use historical returns for your expectations of purchase. You can't use Monte Carlo. You can't use MPT. In fact, the only thing that you're going to use is expectation of return of the client, right? <laughs> so we ask our clients, what is your reasonable expectation of returns, net of expenses, so that when we think about your money, you have in mind, an idea in your head of what you think you can earn on your money going forward. What is that number? We're going to use that. Why? Because number one, I'm going to disconnect myself from the, from past performance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to also say that the expectation of return is clearly an expectation. It's not real. Okay. It's not based in any reality of math. Yeah.
0: Well, it's okay. only a point for conversation but with them, right? Like we can have that conversation in a separate meeting altogether. So
1: absolutely. Right now, the reality is, yes. OK, my model, I'm shooting for 7.32 percent return on a tax adjusted basis with net of fees, given my standard deviation of X, Y, Z and my beta of blah. OK, yes. So we're going to put you in a position. The money with me is going to be trying to seek an average return of seven point whatever. Right. But your expectation is that if you're not going to be happy if I don't do better than five percent long term. So let's use the five percent as the modicum for actually saying set, our projections, right? I'm going to shoot for better. If we're, if we're doing better than that year by year, you're going to see it because we're going to get to our end result faster. And you're going to see that live because we project it live every time we get back together, right? So we know whether we're getting closer to our destination of being funded or not. But I think the key to that is two things. Number one, is you've got to manage expectations, if we've learned anything over the last several uh, recessions, is that expectation management is well more important than actually telling them what they think, what you think they're going to earn and their portfolio is going to do. And number two, it allows us to say, listen, over the long term, are we making decisions that are going to get us to a place of even earning our expected return? Like, I see all this cash, this money in cash. Is this part of the money that you think is going to earn a 5%? Because it clearly ain't going to position that way. Or this, uh, you know, big investment real estate piece, really, is this going to earn more than 10%? And is the risk associated with that worth it? So I think the key to this is actually starting to change the conversation with clients around what are their expectations and how do we manage and project those as opposed to trying to project focus, focus and probability scores, which they don't understand anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing they want to know is, is it going to work or not? Right. And, and that's basically. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. The answer maybe. is always <laughs> yes. That's right. Exactly. Like most things in our life,
1: is it going to work out?
0: <laughs> in this business. The, <laughs> we may as well get it all tattooed on ourselves. So, um, a couple <laughs> questions before we wrap up. So, first really? one, if you had one wish, is it something you could change in your practice or in the industry? What would it be? Oh, boy. First of all, I only get one, huh?
1: <laughs> and I have to yeah, choose. One.
0: This is not a genie.
1: Okay. I have one. Yeah, sure. One wish to change in the industry. I've been speaking actually a lot about innovation. And you know what I realized is that a lot of us in the financial services business, we're not, we wow. haven't seen innovation actually in our business as much as some of the other industries out there, retail, all kinds of other stuff. Because I think that financial advisors are very complacent, right? They have sticky relationships with clients, they make good money, they have a good lifestyle, it's a fantastic career. And they're more afraid, I think, of change than they are embracing it. I think it wasn't until the robo-advisor came on the, on the stage that advisors started saying, uh-oh, maybe I'm at risk here. And I think all of a sudden that quickly went away, just as DOL did in the States. I think what we need to start having is a culture of innovation in our business. My fear is that ultimately we'll, that the outside world will actually innovate us. and We won't innovate inside. So what I would like to see, my, my genie wish would be that everybody wake up and start actually enabling micro-innovation in their own practices, right? And I think that that actually comes from the way they do it without the genie executing my wish is, uh, if you're listening to this, how do you actually implement this? You actually have to start incentivizing innovation in your firms. That means you, I think you actually have to figure out a way either compensation model or reward models for advisors or staff that actually can come up with ways to innovate your practice and create a better customer experience.
0: Yeah, in fairness, I mean, to me, I agree with you, but I also look at it as, you know, what's the, what's the impetus of that or what's the nexus of this? And basically, mm-hmm. being, having come out of a sales-based background in this, in this industry as a, as a whole, coming out of a sales-based background, mm-hmm. you put people in and you teach them to sell to basically live, right? And you still have that in large part being a dominant feature in the industry, right? What you're talking mm-hmm. about in my mindset is more of an entrepreneurial mindset. And, you know, I guess with the ever expanding RA market down there where people are becoming their own boss and, you know, have to start thinking about it's a different environment where I'm in Canada, where everything's broker dealer controlled, most or more or less. I mean, if you're running your own shop, you're going to have more and more of these people who take, take the, the bull by the horns and figure out ways to make their company, their business more, more creative, more inventive, more efficient. And like you, they're going to turn around and realize, wait a minute, I could take this solution and start providing it to others so they can benefit from it as well.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, my path is not a unique one so much anymore. I mean, there's plenty of, exper- plenty of uh, examples of people even like Edmund Walters that eMoney money that kind of went from practice to solve a problem. Yep. I will tell you, it, was a, it really disrupted my entire world and my practice. I had to finally give up my practice, as it were, after 20 years to pursue this. So I don't take it lightly if you've got ideas and there's things that you want to do. It is definitely a change in in direction. But I I really think that there's such an opportunity, Jason, out there for each of us to come up with best practices and maybe share them or at least implement them internally that we can, I I happen to think that there's a lot of ideas that we're not even seeing. And so that's why I'm saying we have to inspire it within our own communities to get it out of the people who who know a way to do it, a better
0: way. And maybe they're keeping it to themselves. 100%. I completely agree. So second question, what has been the biggest challenge in creating and growing this company? Oh boy, you know, that's that's interesting.
1: I would say if I had two answers, I would say it's capital and people, but ultimately it's people because capital comes when the people are there and finding the right talent and the people who want to build a vision, especially when it's disruptive and is not going with the status quo and doesn't follow the same models we've always used, is, you know, that takes, uh, that takes some guts, I think, for people to want to jump in on that bandwagon. And so people ultimately, as you probably well know, ultimately determine the path of something, right, where this is, is going to go or live or die. So getting the right people involved early was really critical. I, and I, I would say for me, I did not have the technology skill. I had to find it and bring it in-house. And I didn't have the, the kind of operational skill of managing a SaaS company early in those early years. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to figure out and get that kind of all buttoned up. It took years. So I've been doing this literally for 10 years. Um, it's been only really the last three that we've really sung, but it's because I took that long to put the right people in play.
0: That is a common challenge is, is staffing as always. I mean, any, any business encounters that, but it's so much more important technology companies simply because, as you know, the better coders will basically do in a couple of lines what the worst ones will do in a couple of pages. So, yeah. uh, I mean, that's just part of, the, part of the problem. And last question, what is it that excites you the most about what it is you're working on, your business, the industry in general? What is it that gets you out of bed every morning and excited to keep going? That's easy.
1: I'm really excited about what we're doing because I think it has the potential to become a worldwide standard. I think that we're onto something in such a way where most consumers, regular everyday people like us when we're not doing financial services, want clarity and want simplicity. And they want, to, they want ownership, but they want to do it on their terms. And if, if we could get an asset map in everybody's household, we actually already deliver in multiple currencies and languages. And we're already seeing cross-culturally people pick this up. So we've got great validation that I think people want simplicity and they don't want the status quo balance sheet or the same old aggregated portal. They're looking for something unique and that's what that gets us all fired up to go and try to replicate that uh, in lots of environments. So we're moving towards a place where we'll be creating consumer experiences really facilitated by advisors because we're really, we're really loyal to financial advisor community, because that's our roots. And everybody at the firm actually came from a different firm from all over the country trying to solve this problem. So I think that's really what drives us all to just make it happen.
0: Well, Adam, thank you very much for your time. This has been great. I'm sure everyone will enjoy this. And I encourage everybody to visit the website at asset mapsingular.com because um, seeing it and what it actually produces is much better than hearing me describe it. Very cool. Well, thanks, Jason. This was awesome a great pleasure to be part of this, uh, this community. So that was my interview with Adam Holtz. I hope you enjoyed it. I do, as always, encourage you to check out all guests of this podcast and ask them out in particular because uh, what we were talking about is a highly visual medium and you don't quite get the gist of what we're talking about on the radio. And it's hard to get the gist of what we were talking about just from the podcast, but it's definitely something that is of great value to client and advisor collaboration. And with that, as always, I am Jason Ferreira. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is with your podcast. Until next time.